the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Today is the chilly first Sunday of Lent, and we began our service, of course, with a great litany, an ancient form of petition by the whole community addressed to God and used in times of penitence, alarm, or great need. It is the beginning of the season in which we are called as a community and in the relative privacy of our own lives as individuals to ponder, repent, amend and reform our lives. And I say relative privacy because, of course, to God there are no secrets. You can hide it from others, you can deny it for yourself, but God sees. Oops. He already sees, so just, as I said uh, uh, last week, get over it. <laughs> Lent is not just about penitence, however. It's also about the evolution of our spiritual lives. We are called to grow and to change more and more into the likeness of Christ. And we do this by meeting the challenges of temptation, overcoming the allure of lesser ways of life, and discerning the difference between shallowness and depth in our religious experience. We do this by discipline and surrender, but also by striking out in new directions. Speaking of striking out, I'm going to change gears for a moment, because something came to my mind as I was preparing this sermon, and um, I'm going to talk about evolution for a, a, a space. I say evolution, and each year a small a growing group of Christians celebrate Evolution Sunday. They seek to affirm what we thought had been established in the 1920s, that scientific investigation and method uh, are not antithetical to religious belief, and that such truth as Charles Darwin, for example, discovered, while it challenged biblical assumptions, did not offend against the greater truth. Indeed, I have often noted, as you probably have, the evolutionary um, outline of the biblical account of the creation of life, so clearly depicted in the first chapter of Genesis. If the six successive days of creation aren't a story of evolution, I don't know what is. Darwin himself only used such a word once in The Origin of Species. It was the very last word of the book. Uh, and uh, here's a portion, and I put more in the newsletter because I didn't want to be quoting the whole thing. It is interesting to contemplate an entangled bank clothed with many plants of many kinds, with birds singing in, on the bushes, with various insects flitting about, and with worms crawling through the damp earth. And to reflect that these elaborately constructed forms, so different from each other, and dependent on each other in so complex a manner have all been produced by laws acting around us. Thus, from the war of nature, from famine and death, the most exalted object which we are capable of conceiving, namely the production of the higher animals, uh, which includes us, <laughs> directly follows. There is grandeur in this view of life with its several powers, having been originally breathed into a few forms or into one, and that whilst this planet has gone cycling on according to the fixed law of gravity, from so simple a beginning, endless forms, most beautiful and most wonderful, have been and are being 
evolved. Indeed, in this present age, as we think about the beauty of creation, um, we are facing what is now being called the sixth great extinction. There were four prehistorical extinctions caused by um, great physical events, an asteroid, uh, um, an upwelling of magma heating the oceans, um, the oceans shrinking uh, as the ice caps formed, species were were lost. Um, The fifth great round of extinction was when Homo sapiens covered the earth and destroyed many of the bigger species of animals, eating them as they ate their way through um, the biosphere. Now, uh, that was human activity. And now in this uh, present age, um, we're losing up to 100 to 1,000 per million species um, every year. Um, The explosion of the human population. Um, Whether these things were created by God directly or evolved by means of God's creation and laws, they are being destroyed. And the beauty of that bank that Darwin looked at, complexity and the wonder of life, is being trashed. There's enough material for several lengths worth of reflection, penitence, and response in that. In any event, paradise may be lost, uh, but all is not lost. Creator God, you don't leave us stuck in one place, physically or morally. You give us the capacity to evolve into who and what we need to be to live and grow, to love and serve, and to proclaim your glory in new times and conditions and from generation to generation. There is indeed a grandeur in this view of life as well, of God evolving us to, um, to be God's servants in each generation and circumstance. We're not stuck, we do evolve. But of course this itself, as we know, has posed problems. Consider the moral and intellectual evolution of human beings from those simple creatures perhaps cast in the Edenic innocence in which the folk tellers put Adam and Eve into sentient beings. Once you start to know things, and they ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, then um, that's when problems begin. And of course that's when problem solving is called for. I have a cartoon in my files showing an Episcopal sort of preacher in in a pulpit saying, and on the eighth day, after resting, The Lord God said, let there be problems, and there were problems. (laughs) uh, I think that um, some of the impulse for biblical fundamentalism is to try to glue the apple back onto the tree. uh, But that's not going to happen. You can't do it. And so we face um, life um, as it is. We face life with, um, we went from stitching fig leaves to solve a problem to dealing with nuclear arms control and trying to regulate the stock market and the environment indeed. Paradise may be lost for this life, but all is not lost. And indeed, there is yet goodness and joy to be found in great measure if we look in the right places. 
Consider Paul's word to the Romans. Many died through the one man's trespass, recognizing what the tale of the fall of Adam um, meant and its consequences for humanity. But Paul goes on to proclaim the good news. Much more surely have the grace of God and the free gift and the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. God never gave up on us. And in speaking to us through the word incarnate, Jesus, and continuing to speak uh, through uh, the, the Holy Spirit, God continues to try to move us onto the right path, stubborn as we may be. One thing I would say is that the spiritual journey probably has very little to do with many of the traditional ideas and practices surrounding belief and what we do or don't believe in, or how we do or don't worship. Let's look for our other reading for today, Jesus and his temptation in the wilderness. Now, Jesus believed in God. He was adept at the scriptures and the religious practices of his people. But God was calling him to something new. And what he needed to answer this call was not to be found in the spiritual and religious equipment he already possessed. Doing more of what he already knew how to do, or doing it harder, was not the answer. So uh, where did he turn? Did he go to the library? Uh, did he go to the, uh, speak to an expert somewhere? No, he went off into the wilderness, where there were no signposts, no distractions, and no insulation against the newness of what he was facing. And in the wilderness, he was tempted by some of the primary temptations. And in the wilderness, he was stripped down spiritually, emptied out as it were. If he were God's chosen, it would not play out, as his countrymen hoped, by creating wealth or seizing power or demonstrating superhuman charisma. No, none of that. Neither was he given the clarity of a new belief system. He was not to return from the wilderness with a new religion tucked under his arm, a new set of stone tablets to put up, so to speak. His faith, I suspect, was so purified in that wilderness that he came back with a belief almost empty of words and ideas. He had encountered, as Moses had before him, uh, I am uh, the God who is. Now, we know God is a very powerful being. And if God wanted, God could sit down and write or have somebody, well, some people say he's already done that, but um, write a long book describing who God is. But when asked who God was, God simply said, I am. Short book. As Moses had encountered the devouring flame and received the law, Jesus encountered the close embrace of Abba, Father, who, before Jesus even set out on his task or done anything of what his new mission was going to be, had, uh, had heard this Abba say, You are my beloved, in whom I am well pleased. And from that embrace... Jesus set out to carry out his ministry, uh, one step 
one word and one act at a time. He was not playing out an old storyline. He was walking somewhere uh, completely new. Jesus and Abba were walking at the very frontier of human religious experience, if you will. At the very point of the evolution of our moral and religious dimensions and capabilities. And in the wilderness, he put his hand into the invisible hand of the Holy One and stepped out on his journey in trust. And that, friends, is faith. And uh, we too are called to put out our hand into the invisible hand of the Holy One and step out on our journey in trust.